Only a couple of shipyards in the United States can build Navy ships. Hundreds of small shipyards, though, build important pieces of the country's at-home infrastructure. Barges, ferries, tugboats. That's why the Transportation Department, through the Maritime Administration, has an ongoing program of grants to help small shipyards stay afloat, so to speak. Federal News Network's Tom Temin got an update from the Marad Administrator, retired Navy Rear Admiral Ann Phillips. Now, this program is about $20 million this year, but it's a program that has been running for several years, and it's well more than $200 million that have gone to these small shipyards. How do you define a small shipyard, for starters? As you know, we're very excited to have just made awards this year. $20.8 million went out the door to 27 small shipyards in 20 states. A small shipyard is defined as one with less than 1,200 production employees, and there's some additional criteria. They make boats for federal entities uh, or state, local governments that are larger than 40 feet. Or if they're doing exclusively private construction, it has to be larger than 100 feet. But there are many, many yards, as you point out, in this country that meet that criteria. 154 private yards that do building and uh, over 300 that do extremely significant repairs to vessels. So all of them are potential recipients of this grant. So it's not a gigantic industry, but it has a lot of leverage over over the economy. It does. And it also is a reasonably large employer, 107,000 plus jobs in that industry, across the industry, 9.9 billion in labor income, 12.2 billion in gross domestic product contribution. And certainly these are facilities that while they are smaller facilities, they're located all over the country. So they're providing capacity, economic vitality, jobs, and vital need to our broader Jones Act fleet and uh, our U.S. flag vessels and military as well, in some cases, nationwide. And I would add in, in territories and non-contiguous states as well. So lots going on here and, and lots of opportunities. And of course, when you think of the Navy, you think of carriers and destroyers and so forth, way out of the scope of, I think we only have two shipyards in the country that can do that. What does the federal government tend to buy then from the smaller shipyards? Uh, the federal government might buy barges. They might buy small patrol craft special mission craft or vessels, all kinds of things that they would need in and around their facilities, whether it be Coast Guard, Navy, Army Corps, or other entities that would need watercraft. So even the Navy does buy small craft from local shipyards in the United States? They can, yes, certainly. Okay. Learn something every day. I mean, you can picture the Coast Guard in the harbors. They have these short boats with a little tiny cabin in the middle, that type of thing. That would be a U.S.-made type of vessel, not in a major shipyard. And the Navy would use similar vessels for patrolling and security in Navy facilities or in other locations. So, you know, very similar opportunities for the Navy as well as your vision of the Coast Guard. We're speaking with retired Navy Rear Admiral Ann Phillips. She is now administrator of the Maritime Administration. And these companies, why do they need grants? What is their economic status or what are the conditions such that the federal government feels they can use grants? A lot of these companies are, as you point out, smaller businesses, and uh, they're very much an impactor on uh, economic productivity in the regions where they are located. So the opportunity for them to receive a grant gives them opportunity to build capacity. It may open up a whole new business line for them, which gives them an opportunity to employ more people and expand sort of the greater economic circumstances of the region where they are. Many of them are smaller scale family businesses, so they may not have a lot of capital available. Although I will point out there is a 25% match for this grant required. So we provide 75% of the funding. The applicant would be prepared to provide 25% of the funding, but it can be a real game changer for a small business to gain an additional capacity or update a piece of equipment so that they can be more efficient and effective in using it. And 
then they can build and prepare different kinds of vessels that can greatly expand their business opportunities. So it's a real advantage and it's a terrific opportunity. A lot of interest in this grant program every year. And is there the opportunity to maybe recapitalize or update their equipment or processes? Maybe they're switching from steel to fiberglass or vice versa, that kind of thing. Absolutely. That is a part of it. And also to expand the kinds of things they can do with the business line that they follow. So they could improve their ability to build more quickly. As you point out, they could shift the kinds of uh, materials they work with, or they could open up a whole different business line and build a different kind of vessel with different capabilities and different technology. So it's a tremendous opportunity for them. By the way, what about ferries? Is that a big business in the United States? When you think about all the places that have ferry boats, it adds up. Oh, sure. This grant can be applied to small yards that are building any kind of vessel. So there's there's no restriction on the kinds of vessels other than the, the size restrictions that I mentioned earlier. It needs to be above a certain size. Got it. And that 25% match, are you aware whether states or other localities might be able to supply that part to the yard? Is that allowed? It can't be federal money. Sure. Can it be state money? As long as it's not federal money where there are different opportunities that can be considered there. Okay. And I guess the state money can't come from federal originally either, if that's the case. Then you kind of got money going around in circles. Generally, they're providing their own support, but it just can't be federal dollars. Got it. And you mentioned there were some uh, 20 recipients of this year's round. Is this competitive and what kind of response do you get? It is very competitive. This year, we had 99 applicants asking for over $80 million in funding support. Of course, that's just a piece of it, so it actually generates spending much higher than that. So in that context, you know, the ability to award 27 small shipyard grants out of the $20.8 million, uh, there's an awful lot of people who didn't get something they asked for this year. And I always tell people who have applied and are not successful, please call and ask for a debrief and please apply again. These grants uh, apply across the country, as you know, and it's pretty important that we ensure that people have an opportunity and that they know that their grant will be considered again in the future. And it's also important that we think about everybody has an opportunity. So if you don't succeed this year, you may have an opportunity next year because uh, maybe somebody else in your state got one this year. And so you know we'll be looking to move money to a different place next time. And from the MARAD standpoint, you know, the merchant marine fleet in the United States is kind of up there in age. I think there's still some steam-powered vessels in that whole fleet, the Jones Act fleet. Are those also users of small shipyards in some cases? We're mixing apples and oranges a little bit here. MARAD does run a ready reserve force, which you're aware of. These are very large vessels. They are not small shipyard qualified vessels, uh, except potentially in a repair circumstance. Many of them are steam, the largest steam fleet in the world, and they are, as you point out, aging. However, in the context of smaller vessels that are steam, that is becoming more and more rare because there will be fewer of them. I know specifically of some ferries that are quite elderly that are still steam powered, but that would be almost a niche circumstance in today's world. Most small vessels are diesel or some form of turbo diesel uh, shifting to other kinds of propulsions, jet propulsion, and we're seeing people shift to, uh, you know, electric or or hybrid, which which is a more costly vessel, of course. But the opportunity to reduce emissions is always good and always there. But um, I think in the context of repair, certainly some of these yards do do repairs, and depending on the size of the yard, whether they're less than twelve hundred, uh, they could conceivably be doing repair work on the ready reserve force and qualify for this grant. I guess the steam would be the novelty for tourist that attraction. That would be a novelty. Yes, point, yeah. as someone who loves watching steam locomotives. where they And I am a steam engineer qualified person from 
the Navy, so I always enjoy visiting the steamships, but uh, it is a dying art. Yes, yeah, so if, if you see an array of 37 dials and knobs, you know what to do with it. I've seen them before, yes. All right. And by the way, what's it like going from a naval career where you commanded fleets at some point to, uh, to MARAD? Well, of course, it's an honor and a tremendous opportunity to command, uh, to be the maritime administrator. Certainly, my uh, largest command in the Navy was Expeditionary Strike Group 2, which is all the amphibious forces on the East Coast. And that was my last command at sea. And I retired from that job. It's a real honor to be able to support and advocate for, to promote for America's merchant marine fleet particularly in the context of our needs and to ensure our economic and national security needs, which, of course, is the mission of the Maritime Administration. And it's an honor to work with our industry, to work with our, our carriers and our labor force that supports the industry, and also to be building new ships, which we are doing here in the Maritime Administration in a U.S. shipyard in Philly Ship, the uh, national multi-mission support vessel that we are building that will be a training vessel for five of the six state maritime academies, but also has a dual hat as a national asset, and we can use it for other needs as the nation might require. It's an honor to be a part of that. It's an honor to maintain our ready reserve force and ensure our support to the Department of Defense there. And it's an honor to be involved in these grant programs that support our small shipyards and to you know, meet people in these yards across the country and to work with our ports and waterways staff and, and meet the many people who run ports that where these small shipyards might be located across the country, uh, both brown water and blue water. So um, it's an amazing portfolio, very large portfolio for a small agency. And I'm honored to have this opportunity and thrilled to be here. Retired Navy Rear Admiral Ann Phillips is administrator of the Maritime Administration, speaking there with Federal Drive host Tom Temin. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century 
educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider 
leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released. And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I I have a takeaway in in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.